And I would invite you, if you have your Bibles this morning, to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Strikes me that there are moments in life in which a person seems to have a crystal clear grasp of reality, and in that moment they can express it in ways that are memorable. And what seems to be very interesting about that is those moments oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes seem to come in those last few moments or last few days of one's life here on earth. It's like they, they have zeroed in on what really matters. In the last century, in the 20th century, there was a man by the name of Dr. Francis Schaeffer who had become a very strong voice of philosophy and, a, and apologetics or defense of the Christian faith. And in the early 80s, he was struck with lymphoma. He passed away in 1984. And as he was struggling with that dreaded disease and as he was going through all the treatments, there were times when he would still meet with people. And, and, and it, it's said that some people were asking him things like, Dr. Schaefer, don't you think you should appeal to God for his healing, for your wholeness, because of all the work you've done for him here? And the story is told at one of those such occasions when someone asked him that, his response was simply this. When I am in the presence of God, it seems uniquely unbecoming to demand anything. What a powerful statement. As I reflected on that in preparation for today, it struck me that the reality is all of us right now in this moment are in the presence of God. And as we think about God's amazing gift of sending his son to be born in a manger, to grow up, to die on the cross for us, it, it, it seems kind of uniquely unbecoming to demand anything. Throughout this Advent season, we've done something a little bit different in our sermons. We've not looked at the manger. We've entitled this whole series, Life After the Manger. We've looked at what is a life that reflects the reasons why Jesus came. What does life look like as I, as I live uh, a life that tries to reflect who Jesus was and, and how he lived? And, and today I want to look at one, of the, one more of those realities, one more of the answers to that question. And we're going to look at Jesus facing his own death. It's obvious that in those last few hours before he went to the cross, the, the thinking of Jesus became even more clear than it was, had been. His words were to the point. In those last few hours, we find him using every moment as a moment to teach his disciples and, and ultimately you and me about what is going to happen and why it's important and what's coming afterwards. In fact, in the, in the 13th chapter of John, the, the famous chapter where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, at the very beginning it says Jesus knew the hour had come and knew that the Father had put all things under his power and knew that he was returning to the Father. Jesus had no doubt about who he was and what his mission was and what was happening. 
as you continue on and after John 13, he would talk about preparing a place and coming back. And he would talk about the fact that he, he alone was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one came to the Father but through him. He would speak of how God the Spirit would come and would indwell all of those who believe. He would speak about the importance of loving one another. He would speak about the importance of him dying and for the, his friends like us. He said, you're my friends if you obey my commands. But when we get to John 17, Jesus prays. The interesting thing about John 17 is first, it's the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. And it's the prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. Now, don't, I, I don't know where this prayer, nobody does. Even if they tell you they do, they don't. Nobody knows where this prayer falls in light of the prayer in the garden. If it be possible, take this cup away from me. Part of me wonders if it came after that when he kind of brought himself to the fact that this is going to happen. We don't know, but we know that John records this prayer. John tells us in 1 John, he was an eyewitness to these things. And in this prayer, there are two clear themes that stand out. Two themes that were very important to Jesus. Now get, get this, this is right before he goes to the cross. What's Jesus thinking about right before he goes to the cross? This prayer gives us an idea. Two themes that summarize the heart of Jesus prior to giving his life for the sin of humankind. And I would submit to you the themes are shared glory and oneness. Now I'm going to focus on the oneness in just a minute because that's the part that he prays for you and me. But I think I need to take a minute and explain the idea and the concept of shared glory. And I will tell you, I'm going to take this and condense it in just a few sentences. I actually have a, a friend, a, a young man that I was part of my youth group who's working on a PhD on this topic. And uh, so I'm going to give you just a little bit of a snippet. We, when, you, when you and I see the word glory, we often think about some sort of aggrandizement. You know, we've heard of somebody being a glory hog, you know, or we've heard of someone doing something for their own glory. And so often, as we've talked about on our Wednesday nights, we have to work to take our Western individual mindset and move it out of our lens when we look at Scripture. Because this is not a thing of, when, when the Bible talks about glory and giving glory to God, it's not somehow God saying, see, I'm great, self-promote me. It's not self-promotion. The idea and the word that's translated glory has to do with honoring another person and acknowledge the honor that is rightfully theirs. You know, even, even their best friend, when a person becomes president, calls the president Mr. President. They, they don't say, well, Bob, you know, or well, you know, you know, well, Joe, let me tell you. No, they say Mr. President because they honor the post. They honor the position. It's honor due them. Our children don't walk into the classroom and call their teachers by their first name. They call them Mr. or Miss. You know, when, when, when I'm in the classroom and teaching a group of students, Unless I give them permission, they don't call me Scott. 
they'll call me prof, or sometimes some of them will be so gracious as to call me doctor. But that's the honor due. That's what was earned. As we, Jesus looked forward in his prayer, he's honoring the Father. He's honoring the Father. He starts out, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. He's saying, Father, honor me because I want to honor you. And he goes on and he says he's looking forward to coming back. He's looking forward to getting back to that place of honor that he gave up, that he set aside. In the next section, beginning in verse 6, he speaks about the 12. And he speaks about how eventually their work will bring glory and honor to him as they carry on the message of the good news of the kingdom. And finally, we're going to see that we all have that shared glory, that shared honor of God through Christ. And it's a reality that should be a unifying factor. Glory is shared with us because the Holy Spirit indwells those who believe. God honors us as we honor him. And it's in that relationship that we can live as one, as relationship to one another as believers. In that first part of the prayer, Jesus reviews his mission in verses 1 through 4 or 5. He talks about the hour has come. Then he prays for the 12, and it's interesting, God has supplied the 12, Jesus says, you gave them to me, and he says, uh, and that's not a, a, like, you gave me, no, he's saying, Lord, these are the ones you brought to me, and there's even the one, the son of perdition, the son that's going, that has, has, has the, the one that has betrayed him, but otherwise they're all kept, they're all protected. He prays for them to continue to be protected. I think it's interesting. He says, I don't pray that you'll take them out of the world. I don't pray that you'll remove them. I pray that you'll protect them while they're in the world. He prays for them to go into the world and and to, to bring the message. And then, in verse 20, the focus shifts. Listen as I read verses 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of the twelve, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you loved me. I think it's interesting sometimes to look at what Jesus doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for changed lives, He doesn't pray for miraculous events. Nothing wrong with changed lives. Nothing wrong with miraculous events. He doesn't play, pray for an amazing revival to sweep the world. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but when Jesus is so focused on what is coming ahead, his focus is, I pray that they may be one. He prayed that you and me, and I believe he prays for you and me, because we, when you go through the span of history, we're some of the ones who's believed in the message that was brought by the, the, the followers, the disciples, I mean, it went out through the world, and it's, it's amazing to look at the spread of the gospel throughout history. 
that we would be one and in unity would together reflect the shared glory and honor of God in us. You know, you, you and I, we know, is it the, the, best, the best Christmas celebration is the one where everyone gets along. Wouldn't that be great? Everybody sits at the table and there's no squabbles. There's no carping. Everybody gets along. The, the best Christmas celebration is the one that the only tears are tears of joy as we talk and, and reflect and remember. The best Christmas celebration is the one where we walk away and we just have great memories and we think, man, if I could just bottle that and take that to every Christmas. And I would submit that when we reflect the glory of God, we start to lay the foundation in our lives of that kind of God-honoring unity. I want to leave you with several thoughts this morning, several observations. And the first one is simply this. God-honoring unity is of core importance to Jesus. What, a, what an example of unity. Father, as you are in me and I am in you, so may they be in us so that the world may believe. Wow, our connection with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and our connection with one another in love are the best tools that we have to reflect God's glory in us and help others see who Jesus is. Listen to these words that were uttered back in John chapter 13. He says, a new command I give you, verse 34, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not how much you know. It's not what your pedigree is. It's not, it's not what your who your family is. It's not how much you earn. Jesus said, here's the one way that everyone will know who I am if you love one another. That sense of unity, that sense of oneness from a heart of love. I began to think as I read this in John 17, and I began to realize something. This struggle for oneness is one of the themes that plays itself out through the entire rest of the New Testament. You get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, there were Greek-speaking widows and there were Hebrew-speaking widows. This is, I mean, the church is like brand new Things are just starting. And the Greek-speaking widows are going, we're not getting treated fairly. The Hebrew-speaking widows are getting more food than we are. They, right away, there's a potential division. And it's healed by the, the disciples appointing, uh, having the people choose six individuals who would bring about and come together and work this out in a way that everybody was treated fairly. You go a few chapters later, there's Peter. He's, he's upstairs. It's right before supper. He's having a dream. He's hungry. And in his dream, here comes this sheet, and it's got all of these animals, all of these animals that the Old Testament says are unclean, and a voice from heaven says, go ahead and eat these. And he's go, whoa, 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 no way. I, I'm not doing that. 
And well, all the thing, God is using that dream, three times he sees that, to prepare him to go and to do the unthinkable. It was unthinkable for a Jewish person to cross the threshold and enter the house of a non-Jewish person, a Gentile. But a Roman centurion named Cornelius had been thinking about God, had been, had been worshiping God the best he knew. And when he hears about this, he says, Peter, come and tell me about Jesus. And Peter goes back and says and reminds people that the message of God, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody, a potential division. You, you go on to the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is all about divisions, all about people not getting along. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. You know, and, and in fact, 1 Corinthians 11 that I quote from in communion, prior to that, Paul is talking to the people saying, you know, when you get together, everybody should be able to eat or nobody. They would have these house churches. When we think of church in the New Testament, as we've said, we think of about 10 to 12, maybe 15, 20 people at the most, and they would get together and have a meal. Well, in Corinth, if you couldn't bring a contribution to the meal, if you didn't bring anything to the potluck, you were out of luck. And so you get to sit outside and wait while the rest of us eat, and then we'll bring you in. Paul said, no, if you can't bring everybody in, then stay home, eat at home, and then come and gather. And in 1 Corinthians 12, because the Corinthians were all about, I'm, I have the better gift. My gifts are better than your gifts. And Paul uses the body in 1 Corinthians 12 and says every single part of the body is important. You know, you stub your toe and the rest of your body goes, ow! Every part is important. And Paul says that's the way it is in the church, in the body of Christ. Every part is important. Every person from the youngest infant in the congregation to the oldest member of the congregation and everything in between we are all important to the work that God is doing. You could, you could go on. I could take you to Galatians. I could take you to First and Second Timothy. You know, in Galatians, Paul reminds the readers there's no division. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We're all one in Christ. Ephesians, there's a call for unity. Philippians, he tells two women who were leading the church, Yodi and Sinjati, hey, get along. You guys not getting along, you're creating a havoc in the whole church. James and John will remind us that it is wrong to see somebody in need and not help them because we're all one. There was all these things, and you look through the whole New Testament, Testament, and it's all about this struggle to stay as one. And I would dare say the greatest hindrance to the message of peace on earth, goodwill to men, the greatest hindrance to the second command to love your neighbor as yourself, and the greatest hindrance to the gospel is the divisions that we create when we put our own needs, our own desires, our own agendas ahead of God's message. And God's message is life is found only through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and who rose again on the third day. Jesus' prayer was a general prayer. It was a broad, sweeping prayer. There are several other observations we can draw from this and from our understanding of the New Testament. Second thing I want you to focus on is this. God honoring unity is unique in its diversity. And I realize the word diversity has so much, uh, it, it can light a candle, it can light a firework, but, but think about it in its truest form. 
to be one in Christ doesn't mean we're all the same in Christ. There was diversity in those early followers of Jesus. There was diversity in the early church. That's why Paul said that in Galatians. He, he picked all the main social groups, you know, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. He picked all the basic the, the social groups and said, no, in Christ, we come together as one and we bring all those differences together and we form a great, beautiful picture. I mean, look around you. No two people are alike in this room. We come from different backgrounds. We have different occupations. We represent different levels of education. We represent different age groups. We represent different ethnicities. What is it that brings us together? It's Jesus. We're here today because we wanted to come together on a Christmas Eve Sunday, 2023, and celebrate who Jesus is. He brings us together. He is the common denominator. He's the one, when you look at the book of Revelation and you have these major amazing descriptions that words defy. It's hard to, to describe, but we have this throne room of heaven. And as John describes this throne room of heaven, he says, around the throne were every nation, tribe, people, and language. And, and the wording is such that it's not just language, it's language and tongue, it's dialect. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in West Virginia. We have a little different dialect than they do here in Chicago. We have a different twang than they do here in Chicago. You know, and, and, and I was just talking to one of my siblings the other day on the phone, and I found myself talking like this. It just happens. Yeah, you know, and, and it just, because it, it, that's how I learned. When I went, when we moved from West Virginia to Kansas, I was in first grade, and I moved in the middle of my first grade year, and I walked into my first grade class, and they asked me to introduce myself, and I said, hi, my name is Scotty Howington, and my dad is the pastor of the Salina Bible Church, and all of my classmates told my teacher I needed to go to speech therapy. What brings us together? It's Jesus. We have all these differences. And let me remind you today that we shouldn't wait until we're surrounding the throne with every tongue, nation, tribe, and dialect and language. I would remind you, don't wait until that time in the distant future. I think part of being a disciple, part of following Jesus, is doing God's will on earth now as it's already done in heaven. And we're going to amplify that. Here's the commercial. We're going to amplify that next year, God willing, when we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I want to encourage each of us to look around our community, look around our neighborhood, make sure we're building friendships of understanding with people who are different than us, who look different than us, who might even believe different than us. Those are the people we need to connect with so that we can be the answer of Jesus' prayer, that they would know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. Not just in the future, but now, 
Jesus says, I want you them to be one, Father, just as you are me and me and you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. God honoring unity is unique in its application. The Bible is clear in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. The Bible is clear that we're all given certain unique abilities. We call those spiritual gifts. Uh, those things help us use the abilities we have that we be given by God to make the body of Christ strong and be a testimony. And the reality is some of those abilities are way more visible than others. Some of those abilities are more seen than others, but I will tell you not one gift is more important than another. In our neighborhood over the past years, year or so, we've had a couple new houses built. And I think about that process. Uh, you know, the, the stuff we don't see is so important. You know, we see the, 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 the equipment digging, digging out the foundation. So important that the guys, the, the, the crews that run the gas line and the crews that run the conduit for the electricity, and the crews that run all the piping for the water, that they do it right the first time, because that stuff underneath it isn't seen is vital to the, that house being what it should be. And then they stub those out in the right places, and there's another crew that comes in, and they put down the, the foundation, they pour the basement, and it's so important that they use the rebar and everything so that, that basement is, is solid, and then another crew comes in and, and they do the, the framing. They frame that house up and they put the roof on. The roofers come in and finish that. The windows are put in, you know. But it's important when they're framing that house that they use the, the house wrap, the Tyvek, uh, the, so that there's the proper insulation. And you could just go every step of the way, all the way down to the finished carpenters that put in the molding. And it's all vital. And if one element doesn't do their job, if one crew doesn't do their job, it's going to impact the whole house. So it is with the body of Christ. We're all important. Not one of us is more important than the other. We need each other. And we only exercise our gifts when we exercise them in love and humility. We spent some time this last year, did we not, in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Actually, I would tell you, I, can, I counted, there were 10 sermons, nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit. We did it in 10 sermons. But underneath all of that is a sense of unity. When we are reflecting the fruit of Spirit, there's a oneness and God's standards are the key. Let me give you another reminder. God honoring unity is unique in its compassion. All about this passage. I've given them the glory that you may be in me. I brought them in unity so that everyone will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is, a, this is a prayer of compassion. May we know that we're loved by God so we can reflect God's love. God honoring unity is unique in its compassion. We've had the privilege over the past year to have several come into membership at Pleasant Hill Community Church. 
And we also had the privilege over the past year, starting in January 8th and going all the way almost through the end of August, of, of spending a lot of time in this book of Romans. And I found it interesting that uh, as I was thinking about this and seeing how all of this tied together, and, and trust me, I'm not that good that I sat down last year and said, I'm going to do Romans, and then I'm going to do Galatians, and then I'm going to tie it all together in a nice neat little package with a ribbon on Christmas. This is God working. If you've come into membership at Pleasant Hill Community Church under my tenure, you know that at that day when we receive you into membership, I remind you of the importance of Romans 12, 15. That says simply, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That sentiment is, is there. It's that idea that we are together. So what you are going through matters to me. What I'm going through matters to you because that's part of unity. That's part of oneness. That's part of a God-honoring unity that reflects itself in compassion. That chapter of Romans, Romans 12, is packed full of qualities of unity, being devoted to one another, honoring one another, sharing with those in need, practicing hospitality, living in harmony with one another, being humble, learning to forgive. You see, when you and I live as one, when we see ourselves as one body, as one congregation, then we care for one another. We care about one another. And that is one of the most powerful ways that we can show people about who this one who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, how we can show them what he's all about. Learning to be people who are united is not just a feel-good idea. It's not just standing around, sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya. It's not a pluralism in which we say, well, let's just all live and let live, and, and everybody's God is the same God. And no. It's not at all watering down God's standards of righteousness and holiness so we can just go along to get along. It's standing in God's righteousness and holiness and with God-like compassion saying, this is the way that we're going to walk and we invite you to walk with us. What Jesus prayed for is that we each put our faith in him and in that faith relationship, we grow together as one so that our culture sees not just a church building with a good sign out front, which is a great reputation, by the way. I love being called the church with a sign. That's really cool. But it's more than that. It's more than the building. It's more than new carpet. And by January, new chairs. It's about you and me walking together. It's about a group of people who are eclectic, we are from many different places, walks of life, skills, and ability, but we come together in this cohesive faith community of love and compassion, and we care about one another, and we love one another because of the person and work of Jesus. We care about one another, and we love one another because of the manger, because Jesus was born. We care about one another, we love one another because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and invites us into relationship with him. We care about one another, we love one another because Jesus is coming back. He's going to set things right. He's going to return. But we don't wait till then. We do that 
now. I want to leave you with this. Classic seminary sermon, except minus four points, but usually it was three points in a poem. I'm going to read a poem for you. In fact, I felt this poem was so powerful, it's actually printed in your bulletin that you can take it home with you. It's written by Dr. Howard Washington Thurman. He was actually a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. In fact, what's interesting is when I say Martin Luther King Jr., we all go, oh yeah, I've heard that name. But when I read about Dr. Howard Washington Thurman, I was like, oh, that's a name I haven't heard. No one gift is more important than the other. Dr. Thurman was a pastor. He was a philosopher. He was a theologian. He was an educator. He was a leader in different academic institutions. He was a civil rights leader. He published a book of poems and writings in 1973 entitled The Mood of Christmas. One of those poems, I think, just so captured what God's laid on my heart. It's entitled The Work of Christmas. Listen to this. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, to make music in the heart. You see, God honoring unity isn't something for someday down the road. It's for now. The work of Christmas begins now. We are the ones who do the work of Christmas. May we reflect a God honoring unity, a love for one another that shows anyone who would wander through our doors, anyone who hears about this church, that this is a place who loves Jesus and loves one another. And that is truly the message of Christmas. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for how your word really does cause us to rethink and reimagine. I pray, Lord, this morning that as we, as we wrap this time up, as we'll sing a few songs, as we'll go out, maybe come back this evening at 5 o'clock for the Christmas Eve service, as we spend time with family and friends tomorrow, that we would reflect on the oneness, the, the unity we have because of you, that we would commit ourselves to doing the real work of Christmas that happens after the manger. Bring glory and honor to your name through our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.